The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Claire Bennett is an author, educator, and consultant with extensive experience in the fields of development, tourism, and education for global citizenship. She's the co-founder of Learning Service, an advocacy group for responsible volunteerism, and the co-author of Learning Service, The Essential Guide to Volunteering Abroad, which I can say is an excellent read. On top of all of that, Claire and I have worked together on many projects in the tourism sector, and I'm privileged to also call her a very dear friend. So welcome to the Do Gooder podcast, Claire. Oh, thank you so much for having me, May. No problem. It's a pleasure. Uh, First of all, I want to start with asking you, what does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Well, I mean, I think it means doing something that is of benefit to others um, and the planet. Um, This is often framed as something that is selfless, but for me, I don't really believe that doing good is necessarily something that is selfless or that even the best kind of doing good is selfless. I kind of see humans as existing in symbiotic relationships with each other, um, with people doing good to each other, like in families and communities and, you know, all the time on, on a daily basis. And I believe that, you know, like the essence of humanity is to do good and to have good done to you. And that um, we're all at our most fulfilled when this is working. Yeah, interesting. So you think we are inherently good? Yeah, I feel like I have to believe that in order to kind of get up in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I, I can relate to that as well. You're the author of the Learning Service book or the co author of the Learning Service book with three others. Can you tell us about the book and what led you and your co-authors to write it in the first place? Okay, so the book is called Learning Service, The Essential Guide to Volunteering Abroad. And it was basically written as a response to like so much of the way that overseas volunteering is currently practiced. So we were sort of seeing the misfiring of a lot of good intentions you know, meaning that sometimes people were actually doing harm to the people that they were trying to help. So, for example, that might mean that by volunteering, they were fueling corruption, you know, by not researching the project well enough to, to know if it was actually, you know, doing good or not. Or it could be that, you know, volunteers were inadvertently diverting resources away from things that are the actual solution and towards, you know, activities that are easier for travellers to do, which um, we, we refer to as band-aid solutions. Um, and in the worst case, as is the situation with orphanage volunteering, they could contribute to, you know, things like trafficking and exploitation of children. So, you know, seeing that from the other side, I, I live in Nepal now and um, I used to live in Cambodia. And you know, spending a lot of time in the places where lots of volunteers tend to come, I could see these things unfolding. And yeah, we decided to write a book that was addressed directly to these, you know, the volunteer do-gooders, so to speak, and basically say, you know, it is it's awesome that they're motivated to help, but unfortunately, it isn't as easy as the marketing materials for volunteerism may have led you to believe you know we say if you're committed to making an impact in a sustainable way then it is possible 
it just requires an investment of time and effort, especially in learning. So that's why we call the book Learning Service. We say that learning needs to be at the heart of effective volunteering. And in fact, that that is the primary responsibility of anyone looking to, to do good before, you know, jumping in and doing something to, to try and help, that learning is the first thing that you have to do. You know, I don't think that anyone will get very far doing any kind of good uh, without having a, a willingness to learn first. Absolutely. And I just love the title and I love that you've flipped this idea of service learning on its head. And I think that really respects the age and stage of a lot of people that go and do these activities. You know, you've, you've got groups of school kids that are heading off to do service learning, uh, which I, I'm not sure totally respects their age and stage in life, which is learners. That's what we say a lot of the time is that, you know, for some reason, it's assumed that, you know, a young volunteer who has a lot of enthusiasm and, you know, a desire to help, who in their own context definitely wouldn't be employed as like a teacher or a construction worker or, you yeah. know, a healthcare professional, um, is suddenly expected to perform those roles when they're overseas. So that's the kind of sort of the thing that we're drawing into question absolutely and so how has the book been received um it's it's had a tremendous response really um i was recently on a book tour in the us and canada and especially among teachers i found that you know so many teachers said to me we were just waiting for something like this either because they had already done a lot of the critical thinking to get them to a very similar place and they were looking for a resource. Or, you know, people said, you sort of articulated some of the reasons that I felt uncomfortable about this. You know, when before maybe I hadn't kind of fleshed it out enough, so it sort of started people on their journeys. So that, that was really positive. I think, you know, the sort of criticisms that we've had have come on one hand from the travel sector where people have said oh you know there's things that you're asking people to do it's like very arduous and you know are you really sure that people can can really do all this learning when they want to just you know sign up and volunteer and then on the other side we've had people from the development sector say oh hang on a minute we shouldn't be encouraging this practice at all you know if, if this is a serious development intervention it really wouldn't have the 15 year olds coming and doing anything and so in that way, we kind of think we've, we've hit it right because it's sort of in the middle of those two things. So it's understandable that both of the sectors will, you know, not quite see eye to eye because that's the sort of weird thing about this sector in general is that it straddles these two very, in lots of ways, completely separate fields and tries to kind of connect them. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that's the biggest tension here is that it is a grey area between tourism and development. You know, it's it's a response to the development issues that are present in many of these destinations, but it's not linked in to development objectives or priorities on the ground. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the suggestions that we make in the Learning Service book as we say, like, if you are really serious about wanting to volunteer, then that is one of the things to look at is the development context and to make sure that, you know, you recognise that any kind of volunteering you do is part of a bigger ecosystem where you're contributing to, you know, sustainable, long-term, locally-driven goals, you know, that you're not kind of coming in as anyone's saviour or, like, you know making the decisions about what needs to be done. I want to unpack volunteerism a little bit with you. I think there's a lot of discussion around, as you said, saviorism and power dynamics, Mm. you know, even going right into colonialism or having its roots in colonialism. Yeah, absolutely. All of that is there. We do try and unpack all of that in, in the book and look at, you know, really, where is all of this coming from? You know, why do we think 
that it's you know a good idea and even you know our right to travel into other communities you know communities that are lesser developed or you know have, have fewer resources and go and do things there that we think you know will help um, and this can be a difficult thing for volunteers to, to think about really it's all the assumptions that underlie this the desire in lots of ways the power dynamics that can be created between you know self-appointed helpers and local people that are just seen as recipients can be really problematic and you know run counter to the the sort of intentions of a lot of volunteers you know that they are really truly looking for a way to help and yet they're participating in something that there might be no feedback mechanism for them to know whether they are actually helping or not so it is really important that we sort of look at things like the colonial history you know the the idea of a white savior even though you know i really believe that most people that participate in volunteering are trying to you know as hard as they can to be away from that idea that they're thinking you know of course i don't see myself as a as a savior rushing in but often once you've you know gone through some of these conversations about you know why is it that you think that you know that you can do this and that this is a good thing to do some of the assumptions lie on the fact that yeah maybe our society you know has it a bit better or has worked some of these things out you know once basically you've had a, a chance to unpack those assumptions and challenge them a little bit then you can get to a sort of uh, maybe a more productive and healthy mindset where you're being you know honest about your own assumptions and motivations and realistic about your capacity yeah and I think it can be incredibly confronting for people to kind of address what those motivations might be and own them and and try to move forward from them yeah that's right the process that we suggest in learning service that that volunteers go through is starting with self-awareness which you know it sounds like maybe an unusual place to start when we say okay you know like this is a book about volunteering and then it launches into okay first you have to learn about yourself but we kind of think this is you know the absolutely fundamental thing that will determine whether a volunteer is you know even has a chance of being effective or not is whether they've you know they have the ability to be self-reflective. And what do you think the media's role in perpetuating some of these ideas around kind of saviorism and, and these power dynamics is? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely huge. Still, most of the media stories that talk about, let's say, international development will have somewhere in the story, usually right at the centre, a white saviour or at least you know someone that has come from you know a so-called western developed country and been shocked by poverty and, and made a change most stories about volunteering are still talking about how it's a, a positive thing and it's also really influenced by you know, marketing for volunteer placements and fundraising campaigns that have to make people believe like, you know, they are central to the story and that they can make a change. Um, So all of this is feeding into it. Although I have to say that in the last few years, definitely within the last decade, but probably acceleratingly so, the media has come out with a lot more critical opinions and views and articles which, yeah, I think has, has sort of helped nuance the conversation a little bit. And, you know, hopefully this kind of thing is getting through so that people are a little bit more like, let's say, like critical consumers of, you know, the media and marketing materials and things like that. Sure. And there's been a lot of focus on orphanage tourism or orphanage volunteerism as one of the very worst examples of volunteerism and how it can go wrong but do you think now the conversation's broadening a little bit towards having a look at the ethics of other forms of volunteerism yeah absolutely um i think 
you know, what happened with the orphanage issue is that it is, firstly, it's so grotesque and so stark. In some ways, it's a quick win because we could say, wow, this is something that is really causing a lot of damage. There's no saving graces, you know, volunteering in an orphanage. I can't see any circumstance under which that would be appropriate. So it's very easy to say, okay, what we'll do is just ban it. But that is sort of, you know, like it's one example of a bigger issue, which is underlying all of this, which is that volunteers don't always know or are able to provide what is needed to help. They often are there for too much of a short time to really be able to do the research that is necessary to know if what they're fueling is something good or whether it's going to have a detrimental impact. And so I do think there's all other, there's so many other kinds of um, volunteering that, you know, have the potential to do more harm than good. You know, that's really what, what laid behind us, you know, publishing the book was to say, it's unfortunately not as easy or as black and white as, you know, the orphanage issue is maybe one exception, but most of the time it's like, actually, if you really want to be sure of this, there's sort of a, a process of learning that you really have to go through. Sure. And do you think volunteerism can ever be truly ethical? Um, I think it depends on the definition that we use, but I'm going to say yes, which is like the premise of the book really, is that, yeah, we're like targeting it towards people that are willing to do the work to make it ethical. I think, you know, if someone travels with an open mind, researches an ethical organisation and goes in with the attitude that, you know, their primary responsibility is to learn, then I do think it can be an ethical travel choice. As in, like, you know, the minimum needed is to avoid harm. But I think, you know, if we're defining voluntourism in you know, maybe it's like grossest form, you know, it's like a tourist experience that has a bit of volunteering sprinkled onto it to make you look and feel good, then in these cases, I think it's, you know, it's harder to make a case that this can be ethical if, you know, the volunteers just haven't invested the time and energy into learning. Perhaps I can rephrase as well. Do you think it can ever truly be mutually beneficial? Again, I think... It can be, um, but the amount of work that it takes in order to be so, you know, we suggest that either you'll be going in for a much longer term volunteer experience because the amount that you have to invest in getting it right doesn't make sense unless you're doing it for a long term. Yeah. Or we'd say just go for a travel experience that is, you know, educational or based on cultural exchange, which isn't maybe the true definition of. Um, so it's always like a, a qualified yes. It's, we're never going to say this is bad, we should ban it, because I think then we'll be like, you know, basically losing all these people from the good fight. But we're sort of saying like, wait, slow down. <laughs> If you're interested in this, then here are all the things to think about, basically. Yeah, so what does an ethical and responsible school travel experience look like overseas, do you think? So what we usually say in response to this is that the most ethical choice that those schools can do is to sort of take the pressure off themselves in terms of the, the volunteering component and to do something like an educational trip where they are, you know, learning about the root causes of issues and also, you know, doing things like meeting community leaders and activists and visiting nonprofits and doing all these other activities which will inform their learning for the long term. The main reason I say that is that, you know, when it's a school trip and it's necessarily short term, it is so hard to truly do all of the research that is needed and, you know, to make sure that an experience is ethical. And the 16-year-olds aren't necessarily in a position to be contributing that much anyway in that particular format. So what we say is, 
for the, that group of students, yes, of course, we want them to be doing good in the world. Let's add fuel to the fire. Let's give them an experience that helps them understand the world a little bit better and allows them to go back and you know do all the service that, that they want to do. But it might look a bit differently. You know, it might be that they get involved in activism or politics in their own countries. Uh, it might be that they completely change their consumer choices or their career choices. Um, and we'll say that is, you know, just as impactful, if not a lot more impactful than anything that they could do in a very short time that while they're overseas. I think a tension exists with what the expectations of students and their parents and perhaps their schools want in terms of giving service while overseas and what's actually best in the long term for those students and the communities they're interacting with. I know from, you know, working with some travel companies around this, a lot of the demand is for experiences where, you know, they get their hands dirty and they're building or they're moving dirt or they're doing something like that. And and that often elicits the most positive feedback from the students themselves. Yeah, this is something that I think we can be instrumental in changing. I found, like I said, when I spoke to teachers, it doesn't actually take that long to get full buy-in to the learning service concept. You know, just asking questions about, you know, what are the students qualified to do at home and why is it appropriate for them to be doing those things overseas if they're not qualified to do it at home and you know I think this is this is a journey which we're sort of trying to bring society along with us it gets to the heart of the white savior mentality really that we were talking about of why it's assumed that you know this is what the best thing is for our students when they are in the learning stage of their lives you know to say that actually they're in the learning stage of their lives all the time, except for when they're in, you know, a low resource community that mm. maybe doesn't have the, the the channels to refuse them doing stuff where they can just experiment with doing activities that they're not allowed to do at home. Sure. So yeah, there's definitely a tension and I do think it's fairly easy to deconstruct it. But yes, it's a, it's a journey that we're on and maybe a battle with some of the vested interests and in keeping the status quo. Absolutely, absolutely. And on that, what is the biggest challenge you experience in achieving your goals of changing the status quo? So I think the biggest challenge is that the people that most need to hear this message are often the ones who least recognise that they need it. <laughs> You know, how do you convince people who are not really open to learning that they need to be open to learning? (laughs) (laughs) So most people that we've worked with, I have to say, are some way along the path. You know, if they start with recognizing at least that they, you know, they don't know everything or that they might be making some mistakes or that, you know, they need to be learning or growing to be sure that they're being ethical, then it's quite easy to work with that group of people. But I have honestly come across some people that are so convinced that their approach is the right one that even they'll ignore evidence to the contrary. Or, you know, unfortunately, there are also companies that are more interested in making money from their business model, you know, the business model that is quote-unquote helping, than they are about checking if the work they do is actually helping. So, you know, that was very frustrating when we started campaigning on the orphanage issue because you know we naively thought that the volunteer companies they'd be horrified at the damage that they were doing when they found out but in reality it, it took many years of lobbying to even get you know a lot of them to even have a dialogue with us about it yeah and we've only seen the real and dramatic change since the legislation in australia that you know basically threatened the profits and the bottom line of, of these companies I guess I'd say that one of the biggest challenges in the business of doing good is 
the businesses that are in the business of doing good <laughs> um, and who put you know their profits and their business interests before any semblance of actually happening absolutely and and at that more individual level from working with rethink orphanages the classic response or pushback you get is oh i understand but not my orphanage my orphanage is a good orphanage and i think that also extends to people that travel with companies that may not put purpose before profit and say well no I trust that company to do the right thing because I've had a good and positive experience through traveling with them. This has been um, studied in psychology. Yes, behavioral people psychology, yeah. Respond in this kind of way. So, one of the, the concepts that we look at in the learning service book is confirmation bias. How, you know, if someone has, if someone believes a certain thing, um, and especially if they've invested resources into, a certain you know company or a certain approach um, and then there is evidence to challenge that often they'll just double down on their original belief because it is you know too much cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. to say oh that changes my mind and i'll have to behave differently in the future so this definitely is something that we're battling And I think that that is exacerbated by them having an emotive experience through volunteering, especially if they're volunteering with children. Yeah, it's unfortunate, isn't it, that the the things that sort of, you know, the indicators that tell us things like, I'm having a good time and I'm doing a good thing, which can be the emotional connections, can be in certain cases, you know, especially in the orphanage case, the very thing that is doing damage, those emotional connections for, you know, people that are sort of well-adjusted adults can feel good in the moment and then we forget about them. Uh, But for vulnerable children, it can be absolutely devastating and, you know, cause all kinds of developmental and, and social problems for them. And I think that's very hard for people to accept when they're having such a positive emotional experience and and they see these vulnerable children who are, in their minds, benefiting from their presence, that it's very hard to accept that that may may have been a damaging activity when they're looking back on it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we stress, you know, so much um, about doing learning. Um, because there is enough research out there there's lots of people saying the same thing it's not personal basically it's not you know me standing up and saying this person that had this volunteer experience is wrong we're just saying hey look at the the figures look at the bigger picture look at the research that has been done since the 1950s to say that this isn't actually a positive experience you know in the long term and take that as something that is you know, more reliable than your sort of fleeting emotions at the time. Absolutely. So Claire, what motivates you to do this work? I do a lot of work with, with teenagers actually, and much of the work I end up doing is getting them to understand what the world looks like now and some of the history context for that. And asking them if this is the world that they want to live in. So even though I do lessons like that all the time, I feel like every time I do it, it's like a wake up, wake up call for me as well. Because ultimately, I, I don't like living in a world that has so much inequality. I don't like the way in which humans treat animals. I don't like the way in which humans treat the earth. And with these really stark realizations I think it's easy to feel like we're not doing enough so even though the work that I do is you know it's absolutely tiny you know propagating this message of learning service in the grand scheme of things it's a little drop in the ocean but you know at least I can say I'm holding my little part of the jigsaw puzzle which is all I can hold, that's something that we also say in learning services, you know, we, we shouldn't expect to be saviors of anything or anyone, that's not realistic, 
do your tiny bit and you know just trust that other people will be doing their tiny bits as well and that will lead to sustainable change so that is what I have to remind myself of whenever I'm you know doing little pieces and uh hoping that I'm I'm somehow doing enough I think you're being very modest there. I think your voice and that of your co-authors has contributed a lot to this conversation and has really made a lot of people all over the world think differently about what they're doing. So I think you're being very modest. (laughs) (laughs) On that, you've talked about how it's, you know, a learning experience for you every time you, you teach those lessons. How has your concept of doing good evolved over the years? When... I was a teenager. I wanted to basically volunteer and save the world. <laughs> um, and I, I just had no concept of how much learning lay ahead of me in that task. Um, I think, you know, now the, the message that we have is, oh, you want to do good? That's great. But put the brakes on. You know, diving into action, which is, you know, certainly what, I did all those years ago will just mean that you're acting on your impulses and assumptions instead of, you know, or emotions like we were talking about, instead of carefully reasoned evidence and then result in, you know, you making easily avoidable mistakes. So, you know, when I look back at my initial ideas of wanting to do good, I do feel like that I was sort of, you know, inadvertently holding on to some of those white saviour ideas that I could just rush over and hand stuff out and take action and that somehow that would alleviate suffering yeah and then you know now I'm looking at it and thinking well you know it's not even my place to define what the needs are for other people and you know I think I've also realized that doing good in my own context is always going to have a bigger impact than me trying to do good for other people in their context. Yeah. So, you know, for me, that means doing a lot of work with young people from you know, Western countries and kind of helping them think through these issues. But it also could mean getting involved in politics and, <laughs> you know, doing service in your local area, those kind of things. You know, it's, it's sort of less glamorous than the sort of typical volunteer trip but this kind of long-term day-by-day work will definitely make a bigger impact than any stint of short-term volunteering is likely to make and I think this is you know the, the lesson that I've learned over the years possibly the sort of the hard way by making a lot of mistakes Oh, look, I can totally relate to that. Uh, A very similar experience. And and looking back on it, I think, you know, there's an element of just maturity, just growing up and and being able Mm -hmm. to look at things a bit differently. But also these conversations were not being had when we were younger and wanting to go out and do this. Or if they were being had, they certainly weren't accessible to us who were probably very idealistic in our wanting to help. Yeah, I mean, I think the conversations were being had, you know, I would say going through the 80s and 90s in the development sector. Yes. Which wasn't, like you said, necessarily accessible, even connected to at that time, the idea of wanting to travel and volunteer. Yeah. So I do think one positive development is that we're sort of, you know, bringing those two worlds closer and saying that, you know what, if you're volunteering, you're actually usually getting involved in the development sector. And here are all the challenges and the issues that are going on and, you know, the discussions that are being had right now in this sector and how do you fit in that? And that can really help people think and realise that maybe, you know, they're not yet ready to engage in it. What advice then would you give to a young person who wants to engage in volunteering overseas? So it could be a little hard to like sum it up because, you know, obviously <laughs> we've written a whole book. To yeah. 
Um, and we lay out a process that isn't that easy to, to boil down. So in general, when people come to me asking that question, my response is to just give them a copy of the book. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I guess if you were to ask like where to start, we always start with asking yourself why you want to volunteer and then to look at all of the things that you could do in order to achieve that goal um, that you set for yourself. So if you are asking yourself why and it, it sort of comes down to the fact that you just want to travel in a meaningful way, then you know, look at all the options that are there for you. Look into yeah. ecotourism, look into educational travel. You know, and then if you want to volunteer because you really want to help the world, then again, look at what options there are. Is volunteering at home something that's going to achieve that better? Is, you know, becoming an activist on certain issues going to help that more? Or, you know, doing fundraising for a cause. To basically say that, you know, you shouldn't be choosing to volunteer abroad as a default option. um, Because... You know, like we said, to volunteer ethically involves such a huge investment of time and energy. Um, and, and people can be daunted by it. So, you know, what we say is that if you know that you don't have enough time to do it properly, to do all of the learning that is necessary to, to volunteer ethically, then look at your other options. So who is or has been your greatest influence in doing good and and why? You know, I think about this question a lot and I've never really been able to hit on one person that has been more or less of an influence. Mm. I think um, an idea that I have been influenced by is that we shouldn't put people on a pedestal and say, you know, these people are the heroes. You know, this person is the perfect example of what it means to do good because as soon as that happens we fall into that trap of confirmation bias um, and then we start to ignore that you know all the people that are out there trying to do good are usually flawed and imperfect beings so when I think about who is my influence I guess I'm just lucky in that throughout all of my life I just had amazing friends and mentors who have role modeled kindness and you know doing good for others even in these really small and day-to-day ways yeah and that i work in a community full of inspiring activists and change makers and i totally count you as one of those eh? (laughs) and then i guess the other side is that i live in nepal which is a country that is famed above all else for hospitality and generosity. And I honestly don't think I will ever be able to repay the kindness that I've been shown in this country, even by random strangers. So I, do, I just feel like all of my life is a you know, perpetual act of paying it forward. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to look at it. So the next question I've got is quite a big one. What do you think is the greatest social challenge of our time? And when I say that, I mean something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. So this is probably what everyone says to the answer, to answer this question. But I would say right now it's climate change. Yeah. You know, I even wonder if there will be future generations to look back on this if we don't sort this out very very rapidly you know we basically have proven evidence of what is happening and what is causing it and instead of changing our behavior we're actually increasing those very actions that perpetuate it i mean globally as a a race and then i also think that the way that we treat animals will probably be seen by that if there are future generations looking back yeah I think we have very paradoxical behavior with animals. So, you know, we'll invite a dog literally into our family and treat it as a family member and also be perfectly happy being part of industries that torture pigs, that are animals that are of similar intelligence and emotional capabilities. Yeah. So, yeah, and I guess thinking about it 
I also think the amount of equality that we live with and accept will also be something that future generations will, will hopefully at least challenge and, and bring them out. So going back to my definition of doing good, which I do believe is what most people want to do, I haven't met a single person yet who, when they're confronted with the statistics about the real inequality in the world, have thought, yeah, that was totally cool, and they were just fine with it, you know, that, that there are billionaires owning yachts and islands and all the rest of it, and there are also people who can't afford to feed their children. I think, you know, if you look at it in that way, I can't believe that in the future we'll be able to make an excuse for having the world like this. And I truly hope that it changes. And I guess in conclusion, there are so many things that make me wonder right now, you know, in, in the time, what on earth are we thinking? Humans can be individually so intelligent and then collectively so stupid. <laughs> and I think that, you know, something we need to learn is how to be a little bit better at collectively doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree with that. <laughs> On that, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? So if it was a message that I know that everyone would both hear but also understand, it would be something to do with this truth that I believe to my very core that we are all interconnected. Um, I really think that if people acknowledge this on a, on a deep level, then there would be less war, less hatred, less ecocide, and also less depression and less interpersonal conflict. You know, if we stopped with this cult of the individual and the illusion of separateness, we would realise that, you know, helping others is synonymous with helping yourself. Yeah. And so many spiritual teachers have said this in, in much of more of a convincing way uh, than I just have. So I'm not sure that me just saying it again would help. Yeah. So unless I could guarantee that people would really understand it, then I'd have to settle for like maybe a bit more of a, of a practical message. Something yeah. like, you know, stop using single-use plastics or yeah. don't fund orphanages or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably a bit more tangible for people to, to understand and act on. And is this belief that you have is this something you've always had or you've you've come to recently so I guess it's something that I've that I've always had that I found language around actually through the the study of Hindu spirituality so that has really come to me through living in Nepal and have been really lucky to have had a lot of amazing spiritual teachers and you know guides that have helped me sort of realize that a lot of ancient texts in lots of religions actually are sort of all saying this yeah and it resonates with me so deeply and so it's one of those things that you know sometimes when you hit on a truth you know it's true because um you realize that you knew it all along yeah um it's kind of that situation i guess and so knowing what you know now what would you say to your 21 year old self I guess I would say you don't need to follow the sort of traditional beliefs in society about what makes you happy or what success means. I do think that I got there eventually um, and that's now what I end up telling all of the 21-year-olds that, <laughs> that I work with is that actually there's a very different narrative than the one that, that, again, like mainly Western society feeds us. You know, I feel like um, what we are sort of told implicitly is that, you know, we need to study hard because that will get us a good job and a good job will get us a lot of money. And there's a certain path that, you know, will bring you happiness and success. And that is you know, you like 
get married, we consume a lot, and you know, this is the sort of picture that we that we build up. Um, and yet, there are you know there are whole societies you know in existence today that don't value those things as much, and that you know put community above the individual and all these other things. And that you know, if we're looking at success now, I think it's it's almost laughable that success can be measured with consumer items because like I just said about things like climate change, we're rapidly proving to ourselves that this attitude is, is doing damage. And, you know, going all the way back to the Buddha thousands of years ago, it's very clear that material success doesn't actually bring you happiness. Yeah. So I don't think I was that aware of that at the age of 21. Um, so I could have sort of maybe accelerated a lot of these learnings and maybe, you know, made quite a few less mistakes along the way if I had heard that message a bit earlier. Yeah, and I think, you know, learning those lessons through mistakes is a really powerful way to learn them. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us learn them at the expense of others. And I, I think that's, you know, that's a really important thing to take away from this. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And that's another message in the Learning Service book. You know, we don't try to hide that we feel like all of us also say we have made mistakes in this field yeah. that we're not proud of. And, yeah. you know, we sort of openly sort of explain all these things that, that we did wrong. And that simultaneously we don't think that it's a good enough excuse yeah. to say, oh, I need to learn that, that lesson, therefore I made a mistake, you know, because... These lessons have been learned over and over again. There's no shortage of information. Um, and that's why we wanted to gather it all together and say, like, here you go. Here's, like, a handbook to at least avoid all of these mistakes that have been made before. So that, yeah, like you said, we're not harming the very people that we're trying to help through our ignorance of knowing what's a good way to do something. Definitely. And it is really powerful. And you're right, having the ability to acknowledge our failures and acknowledge our mistakes and share them and own them, I think is, is really powerful in trying to prevent other people from just doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think it is. And what we were hoping in sort of publishing a book of it is to say, okay, you know, we made these mistakes. We don't want anyone else to make them. And here's a process that we're suggesting after learning through all of this to sort of avoid making them again. And so that, it, you know, it doesn't have to be this perpetual thing of people saying, oh, you know what, I, I learned through my mistake. Yeah. Because we're basically learning the same things over and over. So just quickly, before we move into the standard ending questions that I'm going to ask yeah. you, where can people find your book? It is available on Amazon and on most other online bookstores. You can go to the Learning Service website, which is learningservice.info, um, and find all the different ways to buy it online. Um, but you can also order it into bookshops as well. So there are bookshops that stock it, some of the larger ones, and then otherwise you can just order it that way too. Or you can get it on Kindle. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Claire, where is your favorite place on earth? <laughs> so I have to say that it is where I am right now, which is Kathmandu, where I live. You know, I, I first traveled here to Nepal as a teenager and I hadn't really traveled anywhere significant before. And so I can only describe my experience of coming to Kathmandu as something akin to magical. Mm. It was like realizing that everything I had known to be true up until that point in my life had been totally proven wrong, you know, blown out of the water. And that Kathmandu was there just to teach me these truths that I was going to take forward with me in my future life. Wow. So I mean, just to like build up a, an image of it, so it's a, a valley that is surrounded by these majestic white peaks that, you know, 
you can't always see them through the smog, but when you do, it has this really surreal quality. And then, you know, the city itself is such a, a sort of paradox of this really uber modern city that has all of the challenges of um, urban life, like, you know, terrible pollution, congestion, and it has, you know, all the modern amenities, like there's a big mall, you know, all of that. And then you've got these ancient shrines on almost every street corner. And, you know, these, these spectacular thousands of years old monuments that are in the valley, and they're just everywhere. And they're just like real reminders that, you know, the, the sort of the spiritual world is, is still close despite the sort of modern trappings that we've put on everything. Amazing. You make it sound so incredible. Oh, it is. Everyone should come and visit. Yeah, I keep planning on coming and I never quite get there. (laughs) So what book or podcast are you reading or listening to at the moment? The book that I'm reading right now is called The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. Um, and I'm reading it because my friend Martin Kunax gave it to me and said that I need to read it. And it's really interesting because it's basically offering a scientific justification for everything that I said before about interconnectedness. Mm. So it's using physics to argue what all these ancient Hindi texts have always maintained, which is that physical reality is an illusion and that when you can see things for what they are, you'll just see that we're all sort of one underneath it. So um, it's kind of blown my mind a little bit. I can't really say that I understand much of the science, but I, I am really just loving the, the concept of it. Tell me about a person who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why. I really admire Greta Thunberg in you know speaking impassioned truth to power even at such a young age and then you know as well as all of the people that are putting themselves on the line to defend what they believe in you know there are environmental defenders literally risking their lives to stop mass deforestation and then there are activists like you know those involved in extinction rebellion that literally just don't know what else to do to stop us all hurdling ourselves into oblivion that are just out there at least just trying to make some noise about it and you know tell the possible future generations that uh we weren't all complacent i once read the line sometimes good people have to break bad laws Mm. and that really stuck with me that i do think sometimes that we have to you know shake up the status quo and that will mean doing things that are quote unquote bad in order to get a good outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the Do Gooder podcast, Claire. It's been an incredible conversation as always. And I think I could probably sit here and talk to you for many hours as you and I have done many times in the past. And I'd love to have you on again in the future. Oh, I would love to be on again. And it has been a great conversation. And like, thank you for all the amazing questions. And yeah, I always look forward to having discussions like this. Well, I know you are very good at discussions like this. You're very good at what you do. And, you know, I'm so pleased to call you both a colleague and a friend. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely the same. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.